Thank you, Bev. Good morning, everybody. Um, is anybody enjoying the hot weather? A few people. Uh, I went. Um, I went on a train to Birmingham yesterday. Any fans of Birmingham? <laughs> One or two. Um, I went uh, and spent. I spent three hours inside this uh, this church in in the centre of Birmingham for. Um, Elim Pentecostal Church's ordination service, and it was hot. It was very hot, they didn't have air conditioning. It wasn't as kind of thick and uh, stony as this building, so it was very, very warm in there. Um, but it was a brilliant time, and getting ready to leave in the morning, I was thinking, you know, what do I wear for this kind of thing? Um, it's an you know, ordination service, so I should, probably, I should probably dress up, I should probably, you know, make an effort. But looking outside, looking how hot it was, knowing that I'd be traveling on the train to get there, you know, I was thinking, you know, how do I strike a balance between looking smart and not suffering for hours on end? Um, so I tried to find this balance. I tried to travel light. Um, but after a day of sun, when, when the, I was on the train back to Worcester, I think um, after uh, Bromsgrove, I think it was, the sky turned black. I don't know if anybody else picked this up yesterday. Um, and I looked out the windows, we pulled into Fourgate Street Station, and the heavens had opened, and all these poor people on the platform were soaking wet. Um, and so I, I kind of climbed, climbed off the train, went down the steps, stood under the canopy at the front, and watched, watched this torrential rainfall. I could see lightning in the sky. Um, and now it was quite safe to say I felt unsuitably dressed for what the weather had turned out to be. And... I ended up just walking home in the rain. Joe and the kids were somewhere else. I didn't have a car. I thought, I'm just going to have to do this, aren't I? And half an hour walk through the rain. I was soaking wet by the end of it. And when we look through um, chapters 9 to 13, which is kind of where we're at this week in Luke's gospel, it feels kind of like we're thrown back and forth between two extremes. We get the pleasant, we get the comfortable parts of the gospel. We get the transfiguration, you know, what an incredible scene that is. We get the sending out of the 12 disciples and the 72 disciples on mission. We hear about the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, what a lovely parable. We get teaching about the lightness of the gospel in dark places. But then we also get the hard, uncomfortable parts of the gospel. We get the, the cost of following Jesus, the comings and goings of evil spirits, Warnings of hypocrisy, the divisiveness of Jesus, and the call to repentance. Scorching sun and torrential rainfall. What, what do you wear? How do you prepare? What do you bring? Why can't the gospel be nice and comfortable? Why does it have to have these provocative and uncomfortable themes at the same time? And it's this kind of tension that describes the life of Jesus and his journey. And our, our kind of theme for the talk today is the journey of the king. And we're going to pick up on that kind of theme the next couple of weeks as well. But when we get to terms, when we come to terms with the story of Scripture, when we understand the Christian faith, we soon realize that actually it's jam-packed with paradox these seemingly contrasting concepts that find this strange congruence, particularly in the life, ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 19, verse 10, 
We're told that Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. Wonderful. In, verse, uh, in chapter 12, you know, the, the chunk of text that we're, we're looking at today, Jesus also says that he comes to set the world on fire and divide people against each other. And Jesus, who had generally speaking up until this point in Luke's gospel, encountered popularity and favor throughout Galilee and the, the northern province of Galilee. Now we're told in verse 51 of chapter 9, that Jesus has set out resolutely for Jerusalem. He's fixed upon Jerusalem. His journey's taking him south. And what we see as the chapters and the, the narrative plays out is that the pendulum begins to swing now in the other direction, where that popularity and favor would turn into resistance and opposition, oppression, and eventually death on a cross. And when we think about the whole story of, of Luke's gospel, what he's trying to communicate to his reader, that the climax of Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee comes in chapter 9, where Peter, we get this really intimate moment where Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a, an expression of belief and devotion from Simon Peter. And we also have the scene on the mountainside where Jesus is supernaturally transfigured and seen in all his divine splendor by Peter, James, and John. And here again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we encounter the paradox of Jesus Christ, who is both fully man and both fully God at the same time. And what we recognize that in both legs of his journey, if we're going to look at the northern journey of the king in Galilee and then this southern journey through to Jerusalem, that before he sets out to do anything at all, Jesus is publicly affirmed and encouraged and endorsed by his Father in heaven. In Galilee, if you can remember from the early chapters of Luke, as Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit rested upon him. Do you remember this bit? The Father spoke over him, this, this audible voice from heaven saying, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And then again, at our juncture in chapters 9 to 13, as we begin that transition, I don't think it's a coincidence then that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is endorsed again by his Father who says, this is my Son, my beloved, listen to him. Why is this, why is this important? Why, why am I talking about this? I think it's, it's important because Jesus' identity as the Son of God was the foundation for his ministry. Before he began healing, before he began teaching, before he was even tested in the wilderness, the father affirmed Jesus as his cherished, beloved, and unique son. And before anything else happened, before anything else took place, Jesus was first and foremost the eternally begotten son of God. And so for Jesus, his identity and his ministry, they were inseparable. He had this eternal connection to his father, which was the foundation stone for all that he did. It wasn't the miracles he performed. It wasn't the sermons he preached. But it was the fact that he was this indescribable paradox of humanity and divinity, creator and creation. Jesus of Nazareth, as he was known in the synagogue in Nazareth, but also the wonderful son 
of God. But when we listen to Jesus, when we go through the, the Gospels and we listen to Jesus' sermons, we w- observe what he does, we watch his ministry unfold, we don't see him dwelling on his identity. He doesn't bang on about his power. He doesn't rant about his right and his claim to be God. He doesn't boast about the fact that he was the word at the beginning. Look at me. I'm the one that set the universe in motion. He doesn't draw our attention to that. He's actually the opposite of that. What we see through Jesus' life and his ministry is that he quietly but confidently, because of that identity as the Son of God, he's attuned to the Father's heart. And what we see is an expression then of his obedience to the Father's will, which was to proclaim the good news to the poor and proclaim freedom for the captives. If you remember the, uh, the talk I gave a few weeks ago with the, the little arrow diagram, this is what Jesus came to do. And so in Jesus, we see this other layer of paradox where we see total, absolute authority and also absolute humility. And I don't know about you, perhaps I feel like I've spoken about this a few times over the last few months, and I think I've probably heard a few other talks and read some stuff about this as well. But I think it's remarkable when we think about Jesus and the dynamic of power, how Jesus chooses to exhibit power, how he chooses to exhibit humility without compromising on either facet of his life. Any Harry Potter fans? Oh, a couple of keen beans on that row. Um, you might remember the, the line uh, that Voldemort says, I think it's in the last film, and he says, there is no good and evil, there is only power, and those too weak to seek it. And I don't know why I was reminded of Voldemort when I was, I was planning this. But there is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it. But in Matthew's gospel, right at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, Jesus says of himself, he says, all authority, and by that he means all power of absolute rule, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what he says of himself. So Jesus has been afforded all divine power and authority. He is the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. He doesn't have to pursue power. It simply belongs to him. Unlike Lord Voldemort in the Harry Harry Potter story, Jesus does not seek power. Rather, he lays it down. He abandons it. And unlike Voldemort, Jesus absolutely recognizes this dichotomy between goodness and evil. And it's at the very heart of his mission of salvation. But what does Jesus do with this this incredible power that he possesses? He doesn't boast. He doesn't enforce his own project upon people. He doesn't kill people or enslave them. He doesn't even settle down in a palace somewhere and revel in wealth and popularity. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus embodies the power of God which the story of Scripture tells us is ultimately purposed towards creation and then redemption and liberation of creation from sin and death. The power of God in creation is sacrificial, it's costly for God. He's paid the price. He gives himself away for us. I think it's remarkable. That's the God that we worship. 
throughout the Gospel of Luke so far, we see that Jesus uses his authority to cast out oppressive demonic powers. He also uses his power to cast out and provoke oppressive worldly power and authority and religious dynamics at the time. Jesus uses his power and his authority, authority to heal people from crippling illness, to raise people from the dead. He invites people to repent and believe in this source of hope and freedom that he brings. And I think it's safe for us all to say through our own lived experience this morning, perhaps in yourself, perhaps in the news headlines and the world that we see around us that quite like Voldemort, this thirst for power in the human spirit is, is unparalleled. Influence, fame, promotion, intimidation, the, the, who has the loudest voice, who has the strongest physique, who has the best skill set? And ironically, Lord Voldemort, who in the Harry Potter stories is his embodiment of evil, he dismisses the categories of good and evil, and he takes pride in his lust for power. But then also, ironically, Jesus, who is the embodiment of goodness and God himself, continually empties himself of power for the sake of his obedience to the Father and the earthly mission. Even though all power in heaven and earth belongs to him, even though one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, Jesus chose to live humbly, selflessly, and uncomfortably. And it made me think, why did he do it this way? He could have done it very differently, right? God could have forced his way into the human story and showcased his matchless power. But the reality is that the life of God, when we read through the story of Scripture, and we've been singing about some of this stuff this morning is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together as God is the ultimate expression of steadfast devotion and love. And that when he created humanity, when he created you and me, God desired ultimately that we would reciprocate, that we return to him in faith and love as men and women, women made in his image. And here is the crux of it, actually, that love cannot be imposed. I can't command you to love me. God can't command you to bow the knee. He could, but he chooses not to do that. Because ultimately, love and faith have to be freely offered. And that is why Jesus was freely offered to us, where God himself paid the fullest price for our transgressions. And as I was thinking about all this and this theme of power, God doesn't want us to be coldly submissive to him. God doesn't want us to be coldly observant of religious rules and regulations. He wants our hearts. If he hasn't got our hearts, we're not going to live in the way that he wants us to live. If he hasn't got our hearts, we're not going to submit ourselves to the mission that he set apart for us to play. 
And so when we look at the journey of the king, which is our theme this morning, what we see is actually that the Jesus is confident, first and foremost, of his God-given identity as the beloved son of God. But he's also committed to this God-given mission, which is the selfless, self-emptying pursuit of his father's will. And it's in this wonderful paradox that is Jesus Christ that we see power and humility collide. And in Jesus, we see that his heart and his actions were in complete alignment, that Jesus modeled absolute integrity. And in John chapter 5, Jesus explains to the Jewish leaders, he says, I tell you the truth. The son could do nothing by himself. If he does, um, he does only what he sees the father doing. What the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And and so we see that in Jesus, in, in the father, in the Holy Spirit, that the life of God is in complete harmony. And through the journey of Jesus the king, we see absolute devotion, absolute obedience. And we witness the absolute coherence in the life and work of God in creation. And it's rich, it's challenging, but when we look at ourselves then as followers of Jesus, we get this incredible picture of what discipleship looks like. Who am I supposed to be as a follower of Jesus? Like Jesus, who becomes the paradigm for discipleship, loving God, worshiping him, loving our neighbors, it becomes a task of self-emptying. It becomes a task of aligning ourselves with God's will. And our life as apprentices or disciples of Jesus is is shaped firstly by that same confidence of our identity, that we are children of God. And it continues through that sense of commitment to that God-given mission, which is to make disciples of all nations. And this might seem radical, it might seem lofty, it might seem unreasonable to you, and I think that's exactly how it should come across. Being a follower of Jesus, at least in the way that the Bible instructs us and guides us, it's painful and it's costly. And so we inherit some of the paradoxes that Jesus embodied. And I think it would be a failure on my part um, to offer you from the pulpit, or whatever this thing is, um, a picture of cheap grace. A gospel that simply affirms us as we are, that comforts us in our sin. Because paradoxically, being a follower of Jesus, as costly and as painful as it is, it's the most wonderful, powerful, incredible, mysterious and fulfilling invitation for us to live in the way that God has called us to live, in the way that God has designed us to live. And it strikes me when you think about this paradox that the God of creation, almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ, who had all power, who had all authority, had nails driven through his hands, and he was left to die on a cross. And it's through the cross of Christ that we encounter this most glorious, indescribable paradox of the gospel. 
And so when we look at these verses from chapter 10, the sending out of the 72, you think, he hasn't even got to that bit yet. These 72 disciples of Jesus have returned from their mission, which was to go and proclaim the gospel, to go and cure the sick. And towards the end of those verses, we see these, this group of people come back to Jesus and they're buzzing, they're elated, they're overjoyed because they've seen miraculous things happen. They've seen incredible things take place. Even the demons submit to us, Jesus. Look what's happened. Jesus has given them the authority to extinguish the powers of the enemy. And in doing so, the disciples are furthering the work of Jesus in the world. It becomes an expansive ministry. And like the 72 disciples, all Christ's disciples, including us today, we are sent out to proclaim the good news to the poor. We are sent out to proclaim freedom for those held in, held in captivity to sin and darkness. And like the 72, we, we hope and we long to see the wonderful fruit of our mission. But what struck me through that whole passage was that Jesus tells them not to rejoice in the fruit of their mission. Don't rejoice in that stuff. Don't rejoice in the successes of what you've seen happen around you. He says, rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And Jesus is signaling there that there's something even greater, there's something that transcends the busyness of mission, the fruitfulness of our ministry. And that is the God-given identity that we possess as children of God. This is ultimately what the gospel is concerned with. This is the overriding purpose of Jesus' mission and our ongoing mission as the people of God. To proclaim to all nations the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what also struck me in these verses is that we also get this rare glimpse of Jesus having a good time. I don't know if you read through the gospels and think, what on earth? Does Jesus lacks any emotion, perhaps? But what we get here is this little snapshot of Jesus, his joy, his pleasure. Verse 21 says, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I imagine he cracked a smile. And he says, oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. And Jesus is happy because he's seeing the redemptive work of the Father bearing fruit around him. This is what he came to do. Jesus says that the gospel is hidden from those who are proud, those who are self-sufficient. And the truth is found by those who ultimately come before God like children. If you've been around children, if you've got children, hopefully you remember when you were a child. It's innocent. We're malleable. We're... Um, naive, we're perhaps unimportant. That's the calling of Jesus in our approach to God. Whatever pride or power, whatever comfort we possess, we're called to lay it down. And it strikes me once again that only in humility, only when we accept our brokenness before God, can we expect to encounter and discover the wonderful hope of the gospel. And so Jesus the Christ, the King, 
set his face to Jerusalem. This is where the journey of the king begins. And of course, we know that he would eventually arrive there. He would eventually be greeted as king. But we're also well aware, and Jesus was well aware of what, would face when he, what he would face when he gets there. And for us, the church of Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, the call to discipleship remains the same. Perhaps we think things have changed and evolved, and the call to discipleship remains the same. After belief, only when we model our lives on Jesus and remain in his love can we learn to live life in all its fullness. And despite what the narratives of the world around us might be telling us, God offers us incomparable joy that transcends the fluidity, the unpredictability of life. And through the cross of Christ, God offers to us an eternal life, an abundant life. And for those of us who believe, perhaps you're not too sure where you sit this morning, but the Bible assures us that when we believe, when we begin to find confidence, which is what faith is, in our identity as born-again children of God, and when we continue to live out that faith in commitment, by daily taking up our crosses and laying them down, laying our lives down to serve our King. That's where we find the fullness of life. And I'm convinced, actually, that in the 21st century world that we live in, here in, in England, that as the church battles, we look around us, you know, the, the narratives around us of church decline, cultural disengagement in the gospel, the way that we as people of, of, of God, people who cling to truth, are ridiculed for our backward beliefs, our backward ethics. I'm convinced, actually, that only radical, courageous, obedient, spirit-empowered disciples can offer any hope in this world. God doesn't want lukewarm, half-committed followers God doesn't even want regular church attenders or those who devote themselves to good charitable lives. God wants childlike, passionate, obedient, watchful disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who transmit the good news of Jesus to the world around us. That's what God is after. And so I long for myself and I long for you and I long for the, the church today that we might renew our confidence in the biblical gospel. That we might rediscover the radical, Jesus-shaped, spirit-empowered picture of what discipleship looks like. That's exactly what our world needs today. The world so desperately needs disciples of Jesus who embrace the stark paradoxes of the gospel and apply it wholeheartedly to our lives. The world desperately needs disciples who are confident and committed to sharing the journey of the King. To the untrained eye, yesterday was supposed to be a gloriously hot day. And I looked like an absolute fool walking up the hallow road, soaking to the bone in my smart shirt and my leather shoes. <laughs> and it made me think, the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
The journey of the king was one of paradox. And it's the road that we're called to share. It's one of foolishness and one of perfect wisdom. It's one of life and death. It's one of victory and one of defeat. It's one of power and weakness. And my simple question to you this morning is, are you willing, perhaps for the first time, to embrace the foolishness of God's grace and to throw yourself headfirst into the journey of faith that Jesus is inviting all of us into? If you're able, should we stand together? Time seems to fly on Sundays, and I'm aware that we need to finish soon, but I don't want to miss an opportunity to, for you to offer some kind of response to God this morning. And so as, just as the band come up and prepare to lead our final song, and before I pass back over to Kath to close our time together, um, can I just invite